welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I am doing so well. Sun shining, feels like spring, so I'm doing pretty well and very excited about this episode that's coming up. Me too. We recorded this live last week, Lance, on Thursday night for one of our live uh, True Crime Get Vocal events. We do them weekly at 9 p.m. Eastern. And we had doctors Shiloh and Scott on last week. These uh, good doctors, of course, they host LA Not So Confidential. That is a great podcast that is on the Crawl Space Media Network. And they're also two very good friends. And Interesting to hear their backgrounds and where they're at now. They get along so well, they have a good rapport, but they also have a good rapport with people like us and people who come on the show and also people who are commenting in the uh, message section of Get Vocal. Uh, very receptive to anything. Um, we were trying to figure out what we were going to talk about. I know, I think Dr. Scott wanted to talk QAnon. I think uh, Dr. Shiloh wanted to talk about Twin Peaks. So we met somewhere in the middle and focused on the Cecil Hotel. That's right. Yeah, we talk a little bit about their podcast, which you should definitely listen to. They're in the middle of a series of L.A. crimes. And uh, so we kind of talk about that in the beginning, and that leads us to the Cecil Hotel. And it's really just a great conversation. Our friends, Dr. Shiloh and Scott, are just so smart, and I love talking to them. And we always have great conversations. So make sure to subscribe or follow LA Not So Confidential today. There's a link in the show notes. And I dare you to not have Neil Diamond stuck in your head for a solid week, which is what it's going on for me at this point. Welcome to another True Crime Thursday, Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott. Um, for the two, maybe one or two people not listening who, who don't know about your podcast, L.A. Not So Confidential, could you please enlighten those uh, couple of souls? Dr. Shiloh and I are two forensic psychologists and best friends for over a decade, which is freaking me out. Um, we did our graduate internships together, and we have a forensic psychology and true crime podcast show called L.A. Not So Confidential. Come on and check us out. I think everybody here knows us, though, which is really nice. We're among yes. friends. We are. We sure are. And uh, and your show is is so interesting, and you, you just you learn a lot every time you listen to it. So I'll speak for myself here. I learn a lot every time I listen to it. I love it. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the last episode you did? So we're in the middle of a series right now, and we don't usually do a series of anything, but we kind of got this idea to really dive into vintage Los Angeles crimes because that's sort of our our thing and our theme, <laughs> you know, with our music and our our cover art and stuff like that, you know, it. It just felt like a fun thing for us to do. So we coinciding with the Cecil Hotel documentary that came out, we uh, picked a crime from the 40s there to talk about with Dorothy Jean Purcell, who threw her infant out of the 15th story window and um, talked all about infanticide. And then, yeah, in the Wineville chicken coop murder episode that we just did last week, we covered that case, which took place in the 20s. You guys might remember the movie Changeling with Angelina Jolie that was based on those crimes where these boys were abducted from the Los Angeles area and taken out to this chicken ranch in um, Riverside County, 
where they were murdered by this horrible, horrible person. Um, so we have a couple other vintage stuff we're going to cover in March too. And we've been doing some fun things. We did, we dressed up all 1940s and vintage for our Get Vocal last week um, and told some other stories that listeners had wanted us to cover. And we did an L.A. Noir movie watch party on Amazon. Which we will be continuing. Video. That was a blast. We had so much so fun. So much fun. So much fun. So thank we're you, Dr. Shiloh, thank you for sending that up. I mean, like it's, it's a whole thing on Amazon Prime. You set it all up and then send out a link and everybody joins you. And we just had, I, I was, you know, throwing trivia in about the movie that we watched, but the discussion was really great. And you really, I mean, I really felt like I was sitting with a group of my friends watching a movie. It was great. Yeah. I mean, it was really a different experience for, to get us out of this COVID crap, you know? Well, that sounds really fun. That yeah, can really you? Fun. I know. I, I want to hear a little bit more about this. I, I didn't know about this, but uh, yeah, t tell us what, what yeah. movie did you watch? So we watched In a Lonely Place with Humphrey Bogart and uh, Gloria Graham. Gloria Graham, Is that yeah, right. Uh, so it wasn't one that Scott and I had seen before, and I just kind of picked it based on who was in it and and the or the the description of it. Um, but yeah, you go on Amazon Prime and you can choose a movie. And as like the host, I can send out a link. And then once everybody's on in the chat room, I start the movie, I can pause it, you know, whatever we need to do. And you just have this chat going during the film. And it was, you know, we were commenting on the costumes and the drama and the who do you think did it? And plus all the sidebar conversations like that happen here. And then, of course, Scott was giving us great little tidbits of trivia and interesting backgrounds like the relationships between the actress and the director and all that fun stuff so so i, yeah, think, yeah, I think i think we've discovered an, a new aspect to our you know for our patrons and for anybody else who wants to join in um that mm -hmm. has an amazon prime i know unfortunately for some of our foreign our people that are overseas there's going to be kind of limitations to what is yeah. available for them but um it was really fun and some also, some like really profound conversation was started by one of our members, Pia, had some really fantastic insights into the role of women and being accused of crimes. And mm -hmm. it was it was some really good conversation. I mean, we have I think we have the greatest fans in the world It's and listeners. I mean, it's it's wonderful. No, we do. Yeah. You, yes, you do. We all do. We're second, very lucky. Maybe the sec close second, but we share a lot. You were talking about doing some vintage um, crime coverage. Where does that? Uh, what's the time frame for that to can to be uh, qualified as vintage? Because you were saying that you dressed up in the '40s. So do you cut it off at like the '70s or something? Well, you know what we did for vintage is we're thinking about up to up to really the '60s, like early '60s. My husband Dan gave me like two incredible books that are way out of print that he had to get off a Libris about um, these crimes that happened from the 20s all the way up to like 1945. And they were, at the time, they were crimes of the century. And they're like, it's so funny because most of them are pretty obscure and haven't been like picked over by all the true crime shows. So I'm really excited to share them. Um, but even some of the noir, I mean, our whole thing, our, our intro music and everything is sort of based on film noir which was about you know gritty crimes and sort of dark motivations and anti-heroes and archetypes in in film that really kind of um 
sits in a very special place in the development of motion pictures. And, but noir goes all the way into, you know, into the seventies and then it's been reimagined in modern uh, worlds. And we've also got a couple of other movies that cross over between noir crime and horror that we'll be adding in, in the future as well, that really go deep into like psychopathy, sociopathy and psychosis. It's really portrayed well at a time where mental illness was not really explored very much in film. It's one of the ways that we can truly do some coverage on LA cases. I mean, you think with the the title of our show that we would be doing a lot of LA cases, <laughs> but because Scott and I are working with law enforcement in LA, there's a lot of controversy. There's a lot of things that would just not be good for us to touch uh, professionally. <laughs> um, and especially with, you know, anything in, in recent years or decades, a lot of those people are still alive. A lot of those officers or investigators we may work with who were part of those. Um, so no, we're, we're not covering OJ and, you know, stuff like that because it's just a conflict of interest. So this was a really good way to dive into some LA stuff. And we have to be so careful about anything that's super current because you don't want, certainly, you know, we have a lot of insights, but if we can't take the chance of, of affecting any kind of adjudication or legal process that has to play out the way it plays out with the people that are involved in that case. So we need to be, we have to be really careful with the most recent stuff. Is, uh, in your opinion, is LA the best crime city in America? I think so. Hands down. <laughs> I think it's different. It's hard to come. It's hard to compare them. You know, like I think each, in fact, this, this series of books that I found from the forties uh, talking about crimes from the twenties, all the way to the, um, up to the late forties is uh, there's a version of it for every city. There's a Chicago one and a New York one. And in reading all of them, you see there's just a real different feel because all the cities have different personalities. You know, LA is a desert city. You know, it never rains here. So there's always like, you know, everything's kind of dry and dusty. And I don't know. There's just a, a difference to it of the way the, from the way you would look at something in New York, I think. And definitely the element of Hollywood layered over on that time period, I think makes it unlike anything else. And there's so much scandal and big crimes of the centuries that happened last on our Get Vocal last weekend, we covered the Fatty Arbuckle trials, which those crimes and trials didn't even happen down here. They were up in San Francisco, but because of the Hollywood element to it and the actress that died, it just adds to all of that classic noir yeah. stuff. Yeah. I mean, if you think about historic crimes in America, I can think of like a handful in Chicago. I can think of a handful in Boston. Um, I think a lot of crime just kind of stops over the winter in places like that. I, I think, you know, real like significant crime. I think the weather alone in LA allows criminals to operate 365 days a year. There's so many different um, genres of crime in, in LA. If you say, if you say uh, noir, like that, that noir style, I don't think of any other city. I don't think of any other city, maybe New York, but that's that's more like that's not noir. I, I picture Chinatown, you know, that that type of noir. Yeah, that's OK. I think you I, I'm glad you said that 
there's something really specific about that too, that I noticed because I lived in Chicago right out of college. I moved from the deep South to Chicago to work in a, um, a, a great company and you know, the weather really does rule your life. I mean, we had to the point where I remember my first winter in Chicago, it got so cold for so long and it was so overcast, I think for three and a half months that they had suicide warnings on the radio and they would tell you to oh, pull down all your window shades, but turn on all your lights and turn on music because people would just be overwhelmed with um, depression and seasonal affective disorder. But the great thing about it was, you know, when I was like young and, and like, you know, sort of like exploring this great big, big little city or little big city was I got really fantastic friends. And it's like, you know, you, that's what you did. It's like, you didn't go out to the bars because it was so freaking cold, but everybody collected every weekend at somebody's house. And I still have some of my closest friends from Chicago, whereas in LA, for years because of entertainment and everything sort of being spread out, you know, you can live in the same apartment or the same house for 30 years and not know your neighbors. I mean, it's one of the greatest lines from death becomes her after like uh, Bruce, like no Goldie Hawn, like blow, no Meryl street blows uh, Goldie Hawn away. And he's Bruce Willis is going the shotgun. The neighbors are going to come run. She's like neighbors. We live in Bel Air. When have you ever seen a neighbor? We've <laughs> right. lived here 30 years. It's kind of one of the jokes about LA, just so much separation yeah, from everybody. True, But right. Like even you think about cults and I think about California. I mean, when we did our cult episode way back when it was just cults in California, we didn't even go any further than that. <laughs> you know, you're right. There's different genres. It's like, there's something here. And I think we talked about that, Scott, like the, the reason people come to California and the different, um, I don't know some of that woo stuff that you know about that. I don't know about <laughs> the, the, well, yeah, the I mean, this, people come here. I think there's always like a, there's a sort of a sense that there was a, a mystery about the desert, you know, so like the, the Eastern seaboard and the Southeast and the Midwest are just so different because they have four distinctive seasons. Whereas you get out here, time tends to, um, to be perceived a little bit differently. It's around and, award season, not real season. Yeah, it's really awards. <laughs> yeah, it's award season. Award, fire, earthquake, flood, and award season. That's it. Yes. <laughs> but the the cults, I think, are sort of a representation of like you can feel really separated from people out here, and cults is that's that makes a, a make a, makes a very fertile ground for cults to develop to be inclusive and pull you in. And if you're feeling lonely, then that's the perfect sort of electrical charge that can get you pulled into that kind of movement or belief system. Right. Although clearly Q Q wasn't relying on um, LA to be a thing. Need it. 17 minutes in. Yeah. That's mostly internet based, but I get your point about um, LA because people come from all different parts of the world really. And they're all different kind of creative people. And it is a lonely town. It's a big town, but it can be very lonely uh, because everyone is kind of on their own path. Great way to put it. And look, you know, if you're coming out here to be, I mean, there's one of the things that like struck me when I came out here as a a young man and I was driving down the street is like, you really, there are certain parts of LA where you do double takes because the people are so stunning. It's like, is that a genetic experiment? I mean, what is going on? I mean, you realize like a lot of people come here, like a lot of 
good looking people that want to be movie stars or actors or models or whatever. And it makes kind of sense that they've all kind of found each other. And, but that does kind of create this veneer of every, like you were saying, everybody gets so intensely focused on what it takes to be an actor. And that's a really challenging thing in itself is like, you have to do a lot of, you know, really significant emotional work and training to be an actor, but you also have to be self-centered. You have to have really a lot of self-centered drive to achieve that career. And you have to be in it for the long run because it's not overnight. So being that driven and focused means that maybe you're not putting as much effort into interpersonal dynamics as you need to, to have a quality life, you know, coming from a former casting director. Yeah. What a, what a really, um, uh, fascinating topic. I, I think about that all the time, like how most actors, um, who was it that walked out of his, his interview? Uh, I think Adam Driver walked out of um, an interview because they they started playing a clip of one of his performances, and and he had told them beforehand, "I listen, I get physically ill when I see myself," and and he walked out, and everyone thought that he was pissed, and they were like, "Oh, what a diva!" And then they were like, "No, he wasn't kidding. Like he just can't handle himself. He can't." I, what a crazy juxtaposition, right? Like my career choice. I, he could have done anything. My, my career choice is putting my face and image and my brand. I'm now my own brand, but I, but I, but I, I repulse myself. I don't think people go into it. Not well, certainly there are some people that are like, I want to be a star. I want to be a celebrity and whatever else is required is secondary. But a lot of people really do want to be actors for whatever reason, in the same way that many therapists and clinicians come from a place, a background of trauma, and they themselves are wounded healers. You know, becoming an actor can be like a cathartic process for many people to deal with their past. But so many people, and because I I work with a large law enforcement agency that has a threat management unit every single day. The detectives I work with are dealing with Instagram influencers or, you know, sort of C C list Disney stars that have been working forever. You probably wouldn't know their name, but they've their kids that have been working since they were 12 years old and they have crazy stalkers. You know, like, I mean, it's, it, it's something that they didn't sign up for and their parents didn't sign them up for. It's like, oh, I wanted to be an actor and a performer and I wanted to have fun doing it. I didn't realize that all this stuff came with it. That's a great point. Um, and I, I also heard something about how, I don't know if it happens now so much, but back in, in the early days when, you know, celebrities started becoming a thing. I guess some celebrities developed a fear of pens, like being stabbed by pens because people were requesting autographs so much and they would be approached by so many people with like a pen in their hand that they started having PTSD. They started having nightmares about being stabbed with pens. Have you ever heard that? I have not heard it, but I'm not surprised by it at all. I mean, you know, even Stephen King was stabbed by one of his, um, fan slash stalkers. And I think that actually was one of the, Maybe that was one of the inspirations for Misery. Yeah. But I mean, he had full on PTSD from that that took years of therapy to deal with. I mean, people don't understand that celebrity comes with a lot of a lot of baggage. I mean, okay, you've achieved this this major thing and now you have to live in a compound. Now I mean, you have to live in a compound with an 18 foot fence around it and guards and cameras. Yeah. Right. And people are trying to get to you, you know. 
I mean, that's what my house is now. Just ask Tim and I. I mean, we. <laughs> I don't know how you deal with it. I don't, I don't know how you guys deal with it. We wipe our tears with the money. <laughs> tears yeah. with the money, and Netflix is doing a documentary called "Free Tim and Lance." Oh, <laughs> hashtag. Yep. Yep. Man. My name is Sarah Turney, and I am the host of the Voices for Justice podcast. In the first season of my podcast, I brought you the case of my missing sister, Alyssa Turney. But in the middle of telling you guys her story, an arrest was actually made in the case. So I have temporarily paused episodes about Alyssa until after the trial is over. But as I wait for her to get justice, I have made it my mission to continue the podcast and bring you new cases in need of justice every single Thursday. Each week, I not only analyze a true crime case, but I partner with you, the listener, to take a step beyond just listening to true crime to really be a voice for justice. Every voice matters. So join the cause and listen to Voices for Justice today in all major podcast players. Because I truly cannot wait to see who we get justice for next. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, speaking of Netflix, um, there was uh, <laughs> there was a recent docu series on Netflix called "Crime Scene: The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel." And uh, tell us your thoughts on this uh, on this docu series. As as a true crime just consumer, I liked it. I really did. I I'm somebody who can be totally into something. And just watch it for what it is. I'm not going to pick it apart. And I, I I can truly just go into like entertainment mode. Um, speaking of Adam Driver, like I'm a huge Star Wars fan. I can watch every, almost every single Star Wars movie and not like pick it apart for <laughs> <laughs> reasons that people get all upset over. So on, on face value, I enjoyed it. I thought it was entertaining. You know, the Cecil is something I drive by just about every single day. And I am desperately trying to con someone in to get me in there. <laughs> it's going to happen. I think going to places like that brings a lot of perspective. You know, I've kind of asked people before, like, do they think it's weird and macabre? Or do you think it brings perspective? And when I was visiting Rebecca and Michelle on the East Coast last year, we happened to be coming back a certain way from where we were at. And I was like, can we please stop by Gilgo Beach? Because I just wanted to see what that area looked like. But I, I enjoyed the documentary. I know probably like five different people that were in the documentary. So it was really interesting to see them. The, the historians that were talking, they run a great bus tour of different vintage LA noir themed tours in Los Angeles. I did a Black Dahlia tour with them. They're called Isotouric. And um, one of the officers, Jim McSorley, that was the detective with the beard, he's a really good friend of mine um, and just has worked down there forever. And, um, you know, it's really interesting to talk to the, the cops that have worked that area and hear the stories of the Cecil and um, 
I have talked to some of them after the fact, and they just, they have one horror story after another to tell you about the dead body situations that they've had to go into. And it's just a really massive, bold place in the middle of the city that I love. And I love anything historic about Los Angeles. So to me, that's, that's the drive and the pull to it. The like, Paranormal stuff is kind of interesting to watch. I watched the Ghost Adventures, you know, <laughs> a couple episodes on it. Thought it was interesting. It was entertaining to watch, even though I can't stand those guys, but it was fun. So there were, I thought there was a lot wrapped into it, but overall, I enjoyed it. Wow, that was a long review without. Sorry, um, no, I no, know. no, 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 no. It was a great review. I'm saying I was, it was all like, over the place, just like no, the documentary. <laughs> no, it, I was going to say that was quite a review without mentioning John Lorden. So I think you actually well, owe him money. I'm now. Sure, we'll get there, right? <laughs> I, I was, I was going to yes. leave that. <laughs> I mean, I just quickly, I liked it when I wasn't infuriated by it. And I think that most of us kind of agree that we, the, those of us that had problems with it, is like I. I think that there were some wonderful characters that we got introduced to. Like, I just, I want to, I want to meet the one, the, uh, the general manager of the hotel. I think that she's just a fascinating kind of out there, you know, you know, I just like her. She's, she seems like a really cool person, but I also having worked in post-production and in production, I understand how you craft a storyline after the fact, after you shot everything, after you've you've um, done all your interviews, I, I didn't like some of the crafting. I didn't like how law enforcement, you were led to believe for two episodes that law enforcement, that there was legitimate, I mean, that there was a legitimate concern that law enforcement was involved in some kind of cover up. And I thought that that was actually really dangerous. Like, I think that was a really dangerous thing. They could have done it succinctly directly and, and and addressed it that it wasn't anything to do with law enforcement and that there's still a mess of a mystery right. and i also think that like i wish there had been more emphasis and are we are we doing spoiler alerts i mean we're assuming everybody has seen this right yeah go ahead okay they've had enough so, time <laughs> i just i i just wish that there had been because and here i am i'm a clinician i'm a, I'm a clinical psychologist marriage and family therapist trained in forensics i i wish that they had spent more time normalizing what you're seeing on those tapes. There is nothing. And I love the paranormal stuff. I love the weird stuff, but nothing that you see is out of the ordinary for somebody that's having a manic state and psychosis. There's nothing, nothing in that, that, that doesn't make sense from a mental health perspective. I, I literally see that every day. Right. You know, I work in, when I worked in a, a psychiatric ward of a prison, when I worked in a psychiatric hospital, that is what you see every single day. There was nothing out of the ordinary there. And it's too bad, right? Because uh, when we were talking to John Lorden, Tim and I were saying that it was uh, great that he's taking his post um, uh, docu-series conversation into the direction of mental health and mental awareness. And, and it's awesome that he's doing that. And it's really too bad because we, we all love like the weird and we all love the ghost stories. And, and, but those have their place. And but this this was and there's so many other stories with that hotel that you could say, you know, they're paranormal. You could focus on and I can't explain it. I can't explain it. This her story had to be told from a mental health point of view. Like, you're right. That was it was so frustrating when people go in that direction. And I mean, we were talking to John Lorden about just like the fact that that video 
was the one that they released to the public. I'm sh- how many other how, how many other videos of her existed in that hotel from that night? They released that video so that it could get publicity. I get it because they probably wanted the word to spread as, you know, who is this? What happened? You're 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 going to get more people looking at that video when when the elevator door is opening and closing and she's acting manic, but it wasn't about paranormal. It was about mental illness and it's frustrating, right? Because Ghost Hunters is Ghost Hunters because it has its place. And 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 this isn't her story is not about uh, uh, being possessed. That was the yeah, thank you. I think that's a really good point. That was the part where I was like I was doing the Leonardo DiCaprio pointing at the screen like what are you talking about? Like because that oh oh somebody was saying look at her hands it's like she's casting a spell like oh no guys don't don't go there that's so disrespectful to this poor young woman who you know just her life ended so tragically they didn't need to do that and they properly gave dr judy ho the least amount of screen time (laughs) you know if this story especially the way they did end it and talking about what was likely going on. And thank goodness they revealed a lot of good collateral information about her likely being in a manic episode. But how do you have the forensic psychologist subject matter expert have this much time compared to everybody else? And she's such an expert. I mean, she really, this is a very, she knows her stuff. And the idea that they gave her that little time was it was frustrating. Well, I feel like it's also a bit um, insulting to the audience. I feel like the producers just cheese it up and and you know gloss it up because they they don't think that there's an audience for people like us who want to see someone like that like that is interesting to a lot of people and narratively it could have been achieved in the same way you can still keep the storyline fascinating and mysterious and then have her come in at the end to wrap it all together and 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 help actually i mean what, what and this is part of a program that I'm involved in in my day job is we work very, very diligently to destigmatize mental illness. Because if you talk to someone who's suffering, not suffering, if you, if you talk with someone who is challenged by mental illness, they will tell you many times that it is really not so much the symptoms. It is the stigma and how they see themselves perceived by the world that makes their, their lives really difficult. Can I ask a quick question? You 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 said suffering, then you corrected yourself and said challenged. Uh, I, I want to make sure I never speak about something that I don't know about. Like, I why did you do that? I want to make sure that I I never do something that because I, I, I often say suffering, and I, I am I insulting somebody? It could <laughs> be perceived as uh, marginalizing because that is their um, subjective experience. And it just has become overused. And it's just one of these terms that we really want to, we want to retire it because we're making a value judgment on what that person's subjective experience is. When you say, okay, that's what I'm going to use the term incorrectly. This person is suffering some from psychosis. Well, this person may have a benign psychosis. They think that angels are telling them how great they are and smile at everybody and say hi, because you're the avatar of light on earth. Is that person suffering? Not really. And our, you know, ling- so our lingo changes all the time. Constantly. So like Scott said, we're retiring it. We still have to correct ourselves from time to time. But I think it's a good point. I mean, that's going to be very frustrating in your um, field when you hear uh, the other side of the conversation where people are like, 
Why are you, why are we, you know, why do we have to change the verbiage? Why do we have to retire words? You know, I'd stop being like, and then they bring it to the PC conversation. Yeah. And I want to go, well, why is it a problem for you? We change things all the time. (laughs) Things change constantly. Yeah. So just, we don't use, you know, we used to use the R word when we were talking about people with developmental disability. And then it became, we used as, you know, my generation used it as a pejorative on the schoolyard. And mm-hmm. I'm guilty of it. I mean, it's like, it's kind of shameful to think that we use that, especially when I work with and have some really good friends who are DD and, you know, that like, oh God, I used to use that as like an insult or even as just yeah. a mild joke. So hopefully, I mean, it's also about trying to just be all of us. We should be trying to be better people and be more respectful of other people's experience. And that, you know, that's a foreign concept to some people. I want to comment on one thing that you said, Scott, when you were talking about the narrative in the documentary that the police were involved in a conspiracy, maybe even with the hotel staff about all of this. And I know this is my bias from my experience and who I am and how I was raised and the jobs that I did, but I am getting really sick of this narrative coming up a lot that nothing law enforcement says can be believed now. And I'm hearing that in reviews of movies, reviews of podcasts, reviews of stories being told from a a law enforcement as like the first person perspective. I, I heard it with the, like the Richard Ramirez documentary that, oh man, they had the investigators leading this conversation. And that in this day and age, when yes, there is police reform that needs to happen, but following that, it feels like there are some individuals who are just saying, ah, we got to discount everything they're saying and we can't believe it anymore. And or it rises to the level of conspiracy. And I hope there's not room for that much longer. It's a great point. Uh, it, it is a really great point. And it's uh, such a polarizing conversation when it shouldn't be a polarizing conversation because one side wants to pit the other side. One side wants to pit there. Like they want to pit one side against the other, right? There, there always has to be some sort of division. There always has to be some sort of uh, total extreme black and white thinking, which is yeah. the easiest, most non-challenging thinking at all. I don't even understand, understand why like defund the police became a, a, a term. The because mantra, yeah. No one ever said that. People like people said we need to figure out how to retrain. We need to figure out how to uh, how to how to like re- reallocate a budget for police departments so that they have, uh, you know, counseling. They have sort of um, the the way to approach crimes, like like things like that. Like no one no one ever said pull the plug on police. <laughs> you know, I just get so frustrated because like ninety five percent of police are great. Ahead, it's Scott. a catchphrase that's designed to be political. It's it's Absolutely. about being used, and and what that angers me about uh, angers me about that is that that marginalizes the people the, that marginalizes the legitimate concerns that people do have when law enforcement is involved, and there are some legitimate concerns, and we Absolutely. need to address those. But when you when you paint everything in broad strokes and black and white, then nothing gets done. And one of the things that just frustrates me to no end is that. Everybody was talking about, we need to get more counselors out there, more counselors out there. Guys, that's what I do. I'm in a co-responder model with law enforcement. We go out every single day. We see people in crisis. We talk people off bridges. We 
work with their families to get them treatment. There have been co-responder models in Southern California and all over the U.S. for years, and they do great work. And it really is. It just makes me, it's been very frustrating for me knowing that this has been really my life's work now for five years. And it's like, I mean, I'm not, I'm, I get really frustrated with my own employer because I want to go, would you guys hire a damn publicist yeah. so that the world can know that this exists, you know? And anyway, I'm sorry, I'm yeah. ranting, but it's a, it's a, once again, it comes back to concrete thinking versus thinking critically about things. And there are some people that don't know how to crit- critically think. There are some people that choose not to critically think. And then there are other people that exploit the other parts of the population's inability to critical think to drive political wedges between individuals and organizations. Yeah. I mean, well said. I mean, that's that's been a device that has been used for years and years. And it's so weaponized now and it's so easily distributed and easily... Um, I guess, executed because of social media, how, how fast you can get the word out there. I mean, there's so many cliches about how fast a lie will travel compared to the truth, right? And I don't, I, I feel, I feel awful that you're in that industry. Like that is your job. That's your profession. And no one knows, like everyone thinks like cops just go out, they shoot a couple people, they hit the bars and then they go home and there's, you know, and it, that's where it ends. And I mean, it's what you do is, is so important. And there's another part to it too, where they're like, you know, let's, let's get just clinician uh, pairs to go out. And we go into very dangerous situations where law enforcement, we need law enforcement there. And there are some non-emergency situations where absolutely you can get clinicians out there. And that is the best, that is the ultimate. And that's also what we have continued to expand exponentially. And it continues to expand. But everybody, once again, is not critically thinking about the times that we do need law enforcement as a backup because we because we know that this individual who's having an episode has a cache of weapons in their home. Like, I wish people would think about that stuff more often. The realities of it, which is really interesting. I've got a peek behind the curtain in the last six months because I was pulled from my regular duties to go work under training and education for the department that I'm with. And basically because they needed someone else to help and do the research and do the development for future trainings. And you have these two things colliding where it's this, I'm not going to say defund the police, but reallocation of funds. But also we need a lot of training for the ways in which we want to improve law enforcement and the ways in which they serve the community in a safe way. Yet where did they pull money from right at the beginning? It was training. So they they need to take money and put it in other areas. And they say, oh, well, we're not going to hire more officers. So guess what? Training the academy is under you. So you're not going to be putting through all these recruits. We're going to take money from you and put it elsewhere. And here I'm like, wait, I'm sorry, what's happening? <laughs> like, I should have known, you know, these big political beasts um, in a big metropolitan city. But it was very interesting and enlightening um, to the point where I was like, you need to hire interns then to do this research that I'm doing, because at least they're free if they can get some grants to work here or something, but you need bodies doing this. So who is uh, the 
department or the responsible parties for how the budget and the funding is allocated. Like who makes that decision that we're pulling money from training to, to go over here? I don't know for sure. I didn't get that much of a peek behind the curtain. <laughs> that was way above my pay grade. Um, you know, I think it's department by department within the city. So uh, the each unit, like the training unit that I'm in says, here's our proposed budget, what we would like to do, and what that would include. And to do our job well, we need we need a quality assurance unit. We need to start doing evidence-based research to make sure our training is the best and it's backed by science. And that's what I was really pushing towards as my sort of goal while I was there. Like, just because we've been doing this thing for hundreds of years, maybe we need some research to show that it works, right? So they they put their proposal, send it up the chain at the department. And then I think each department has its own budget. And when I mean department, I mean, you know, you have your water department, you have your police department, you have your fire department um, in a big city. And I'm sure that the department then sends their budget to the city at some point. But um, I don't know exactly how the different pots get moved around. Well, I, I think you raised some interesting points about, uh, I don't know, I guess what what was kind of conspiracy light or or brushing against conspiracies in that documentary I mean, well, first of all, in the video, there are some we there are some weird things that weren't really explained when the video first came out, right? Like the elevator door staying open longer um, was the one thing that I was always wondering about. I never thought it was a ghost. Um, I wouldn't say or anything, but I I didn't know what the hell it was. Why it was open like that? I thought maybe someone was holding the button. Who knew? Um, but it's great to find out. You know, obviously dig into it and really unpack the entire story, faults included. If we dug into any one of us that deeply with the the power of internet investigators or whatever you want to call them, I'm sure you would find all these crazy coincidences like, you know, Dr. Shiloh's name is for this medication that blah, blah, blah. You know, it, it's just we're not digging into every single thing that deeply. When we we did a, I mean, we've touched on conspiracy theories in a couple of our episodes, but in one of them, when we were really gathering all the the relevant data in the psych journals and you know various legit research journals, one of the things that kept coming up was this study, and now I'm blanking on where it was done, but it showed statistically how you can prove that conspiracies aren't real. For one thing conspiracies cannot hold up in a large group because there's leakage. Like the idea, like, unless, you know, it's like, like the beginning of the stand where the government's doing that research and they've got everybody in an underground facility researching on the disease, right? Right. There was like, they were a bioweapon or something, but even that is a fantasy because every, somebody knows something and the longer it goes on, and the more people that are involved, it's impossible to keep a secret. And then somebody sent out a meme that was really hilarious saying that like conspiracy theorists are so cute because clearly they've never worked as a project manager where <laughs> nobody, you know, if you have a group of 20 people, there are no secrets. Nobody's going to keep a secret. And I, I tend to agree with that. I mean, I work with a large government agency and everybody knows everybody, everything about every clinician. Oh, did you hear what the, the write-up that they got? They're the worst. Going all over the place. Yeah. But do you believe that there's uh, perhaps a 
segment of our culture that will invent conspiracy theories because they want to perpetrate their own conspiracies. Sure. People yeah. just like to f*** with people. I mean, that's what it comes down to. Or, right. or to legitimately cover up something. I mean, look, they, yeah, that's you know, we, we know about the Tuskegee experiments against black men and women in Alabama, which was horrific, horrific. And they didn't even cover it up. They just didn't do anything. I mean, their right. cover up was that, oh, just we're giving you it. this treatment, you know, come back in while they were watching the progression of the disease, which is just devastatingly awful. So, but I mean, like, what's the one? There's a couple of with, around Roswell and that the weather balloon was released as a cover or or the alien ship itself was supposed to be a cover up for, you know, an aircraft or like a super secret aircraft that they were testing. I don't know. That seems plausible. Yeah, I think people go the conspiracy route and the uh, the chat room, Michelle and Greg have kind of chimed in on this, that um, when there's no answer, I think people tend to blame the police, I think, first, you know? Yeah, well, like Michelle said, it's, it's kind of an easy answer. It's an mm. easy out. And it doesn't help that we have some really great documentaries that have uncovered some awful corruption. You know, I, I've said this time and time again on our show like i just remember watching um making a murderer and those law enforcement officers on the stand and then the blood spatter guy and i remember my husband was working homicide at the time and i just looked at him and i'm like please don't let that ever be you like i i will die like <laughs> please no case is worth lying even a little bit and he just looked at me like i was crazy like of course not and i'm like don't mortify me <laughs> because there will be a documentary about it. But, you know, it's when we everybody is watching the number one Netflix show and it's highlighting something this awful, it feels prevalent. It feels like, oh, my God, how much is this happening? And I love that they're uncovering this because it is awful. And I hope every detective is thinking, I don't want to be that guy on that show or that yeah. woman on that show. Well, good. And the changeling is a perfect example of that. So in the Wineville chicken coop murders, you know, there was a young serial killer in his early twenties. He was a sexual predator and raped, molested, beat, killed, dismembered multiple children with the help of a family member. And the movie, the changeling is about one of those children that disappeared and the young man who lives on the other side of the country, who's a runaway, who decides he's going to impersonate that missing child. And now this is an example that has been verified is that the head of the LAPD at that time kept getting, you know, the mom was pestering. She's like, where is my child? What are you doing? Why can't you find my child? And he was desperate to just make it go away. So when this kid came in that met was none of the care didn't even look like him wasn't the same height had different physical characteristics different dental records um you know the chief of police was like here's your son mm -hmm. and mom is going uh no this this is not my this is not my son well why don't you just take him home for a few days and then try him out you know so she comes back a few days later like i'm telling you this is not my son so the chief of police puts her on a long-term psychiatric hold and puts her over at the state hospital. So that stuff does happen, but I don't think, I mean, that was also almost a hundred years ago 
where you could get away with that kind of thing. You can't really get away with that now. Well, God forbid you be a woman in the twenties and disagree with what a man's saying. Right to <laughs> There's the a special bin. code for that to put you into the loony bin. God forbid if you're a woman and you in the twenties, like they, they had just wings and of, of asylums dedicated to tormenting women. So the actual code that they used to put her in was it was called code 12 and it was if a woman was being difficult so please define that because <laughs> wow because shiloh and i like you guys you know you your friendship and your love of each other comes through in your work and we get comments that that is really a sustaining thing about or it's maybe your mutual death threats against each other i don't know whatever it is it works but shiloh and i Trauma have really bonding. good you got trauma it. We have a really good relationship and people talk about like how they just enjoy listening to us banter. But I also want to sort of normalize that, you know, you can be an expert and still not be a hundred percent right. And we are both completely open to being schooled and learning, you know, we, we, because for one thing, anybody in any field, if they think that they're the ultimate expert, you know, that means, okay, are you keeping up with every journal article that's coming out and every bit of research? Well, that's not Impossible. possible. You, know, you have to, you have to try, you have to strive for that. But you know, I think I that's feel what like people... I am constantly behind on everything. Yeah. I mean, and, and I guess that's a good thing because I'm always, I was looking up a topic tonight that I thought, Ooh, we might touch on this and I need to see what's out there just so I have it right. And uh, you know, now I'm like, oh, I want to go to a training on that. Like, I just feel like I'm constantly <laughs> behind and need to get up on everything that I'm interested in. Now that you said that, I feel like I wish we threw more curveballs at you during this conversation. Now, I'll save it. I'll, I save everything. I, it's fine. <laughs> I didn't know, we, didn't know you were researching just in case we brought something up. Shit. Well, That's people us. need to re remember that. <laughs> People need to remember that I don't know is a perfectly legitimate response yeah. to a question. I've never said that before. I'll never say it. Because <laughs> Lance knows. <laughs> I I know. He doesn't not know. I have, forgot, I have forgotten more than I know. <laughs> <laughs>